Day and welcome to the Pandemi Show. Stories of the Pandemi for people living in the Pandemi. No one is alone on the Pandemi Show. Thanks for joining us as we unite humanity through stories of hope, connection, and community in the face of the global pandemic. We are all in this together, and we're glad you're here together with us. Thanks for taking a moment to like, subscribe, and follow the Pandemi Show on social media. Today, we are transcending time and space to Washington, D.C., United States of America. Who are you? Hey, Dave, it's Evan McIntosh here down in D.C. Um, so happy to be here with you. I love the work you're doing on the Pandemic Show. It's an honor to be your guest. Evan, I just want to say thank you for your time away from your family here with us today to talk about your interesting perspective and experiences during the pandemic. Can you tell us what was your life like pre-pandemic? Like many people, my life was normal, I guess. I do work for the Foreign Service. And so prior to the pandemic, I was down in uh, Venezuela working at the Canadian Embassy in Caracas, which was uh, an exciting um, and challenging opportunity. I was there with my partner who, we, you know, we recently got married. She was my fiance back then. We spent two years in Caracas. Obviously, Venezuela incredibly complicated country, a very complex economic situation and political situation. And we were there for two years. Uh, we actually closed the embassy because of the situation there. We could no longer get secure access to basic goods um, like food, water, gasoline. So we had to shut down. And that was quite a sad and challenging experience leaving. But uh, after that, I came back to Ottawa and then found myself working on a task force supporting the, the federal response to COVID-19 um, in Canada. First of all, thank you so much for your work in Venezuela. It is a tragedy, the instability and the challenges that that country is facing. It is an example of how pre-pandemic, we as a human society, a global human community had some serious problems. A very wealthy country in terms of a, a pristine oil lake, on the top of a mountain with really pure oil and lots of politics later, uh, heavy duty situation, a lot of pain and suffering. But good news, we are in the part of the pandemic where it looks like there's going to be some some kind of elections in Venezuela and there will be an opposition. So that is a ray of bright light on a cloudy day. So you were doing some heavy duty lifting before the pandemic and then the pandemic struck and you were in Ottawa. And then you were you transitioned to a task force doing important work, trying to support the government's response to support remote communities. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. It was essentially the a number of federal departments kind of mounted their own response. Uh, a lot of what was in the media was the vaccine response, really, you know, the, the Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada, you know, was coordinating kind of public health alerts. What was not so much in the media uh, was the actual help to remote uh, communities and Indigenous communities, specifically First Nations and Indigenous people. The, a lot of Canadians don't know this. I'm sure you do. But a lot of Canadians don't know that healthcare 
for First Nations is actually a federal responsibility. So while the provincial governments were busy and in many cases overwhelmed dealing with sick people, both people who had COVID and people who didn't, because obviously, as you know, people going to the hospital with COVID were bumping people with other conditions from hospital beds. It was a complex situation. And so remote communities especially really struggled to even just basic things like creating an isolation center in a remote community is extremely difficult. They don't have law enforcement. They don't have facilities. They don't oftentimes have access to supplies or ready access, I should say. And so what my job was uh, while I was at the public safety ministry was to work within my team. We coordinated resources with the Canadian forces and the Canadian Red Cross, as well as provincial governments and local municipal governments and First Nations leaders, Indigenous Services Canada, a number of federal departments, Health Canada, uh, the Privy Council office. You can imagine the politics of it were complex, especially in in, in provinces where the governing party was not the same as the federal governing party. And so there was uh, oftentimes a reticence to accept federal assistance when it was needed, but it was extremely rewarding work. You know, it was the first time in my career where I I was working directly on issues uh, affecting my fellow Canadians. And uh, and it was extremely gratifying, but also, you know, eye-opening in terms of learning about how People in, especially in the far north and uh, in remote communities, how they live and the struggles that they uh, manage on a day-to-day basis. I, I should say I am recording this interview today on the Haldeman Track in Ontario on the traditional land of the Neutral, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe people. I recently learned something that I just want to share with you. The new trowel, it's not an indigenous group that's around anymore, but the new trowel, apparently that was a colonial term for them. So today here on the pandemic show, for the first time, I'm going to share the traditional territory of the new trowel in the original indigenous language. Chanonk Tun, the keepers of the deer. Recently, there were some challenges too in uh, Nunavut with some old gasoline or oil getting into the municipal water. And that was a climate change issue with the permafrost shifting. Things are happening. It's good to hear that during this pandemic, the federal government mobilized to support remote communities, something maybe they should have been doing before the pandemic, but hopefully it continues after the pandemic to address the legacy of colonialism and the, the challenges that we face on the path reconciliation and like tom jackson said when he was here on the pandemic show on national truth and reconciliation day we need to we need to recognize the truth and we have to end the silence around the past you did so much there in the pandemic but not just with jobs you also got married and were visiting your extended family overseas could you tell us a little bit about what it was like traveling to south america during the pandemic and what the covid-19 pandemic felt like and the experience was like while you were there my wife is colombian uh, we met 6 years ago um in bogota colombia where i was posted to the embassy there the canadian embassy um, which was again uh, it was a privilege to to be there during a complicated time where colombia reached a peace deal with their largest rebel group, and uh, which is a, a major step forward in, in that country's history. 2016. But, uh, 2016, yeah. Uh, but Lucia, my partner and I, we, we got married two months ago uh, in Colombia. Throughout the pandemic, I think Lucia went down three times. Uh, I went down twice. And, you know, again, uh, we were privileged enough to be able to do that. And uh, obviously taking all the precautions that we could. Traveling during the pandemic was 
complicated and stressful. You know, you could feel, I mean, it's been so long that maybe some of your listeners have forgotten. I I certainly have, but um, in the beginning of the pandemic, everything felt so dangerous right? Like we, no one really knew what was happening. You know, going to the grocery store felt like you were somehow breaking some kind of a rule or, and people were very, very jumpy and sensitive. Traveling was, was that kind of feeling, but like a hundredfold, uh, a lot of tension. The airlines, of course, do their best to try and tell you that the air is filtered and everything's safe. But, you know, me working for the government, I, I, I would see the statistics of the incoming flights. And, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of people getting sick on air, airlines coming into Canada. And it was a major source of contagion. So getting to your question, though, you know, flying down to Colombia was stressful. The situation in Colombia was such that vaccines, they didn't have access to the same vaccines as quickly as we did. Their vaccine rollout was very slow. It it continues to be quite slow. Colombia is not the poorest country in Latin America, but it's uh, it's kind of middle of the road. When you, you saw some success stories down in South America, in Chile, for example, they they were very proactive with getting their hands on vaccines. Part of the problem, and I think this might be interesting for some of your listeners, is you know Colombia right now has a conservative government in their in their national government. Their president's quite conservative, comes from a conservative movement. I mean, he's kind of he was the heir apparent to a very famous and popular former president. So the anti-vaccine movement in Colombia is very much on like left-wing political side uh, of the spectrum, very much kind of in opposition to the government, which is not really what you see in North America. In Canada and the United States, you see a lot of anti-vaccine kind of manifesting itself on the right. And we in Canada, we kind of think of that as almost like a Trump thing. Whereas in Colombia, it's very much a left-wing thing, which is an interesting dynamic. And I think if you kind of broaden the scope worldwide, anti-vax sentiment seems to kind of manifest itself as an anti-authority kind of movement rather than something to do whether you trust or you don't trust science. And it really shows too, just how many people felt disenfranchised or felt like society didn't care about them before this. You made a really astute observation about how when you first were going down to Colombia, it was early on in the pandemic. And I recently read somewhere that the stages of the pandemic were first horror, then hope, then rage, and now anxious optimism. And when you mentioned that there was more fear around the uncertainty of the virus, it reminded me of what Dope said from Montreal punk rock band, Bad Skin. Dope said earlier on, you were afraid to touch something thinking that you would get the COVID cooties just from touching something. Now we have a lot more, we've adapted. We have the knowledge that it's more of an airborne situation where you're in a confined area for significant periods of time, outside safe, inside, you want to be careful. But yeah, interesting points. And it's unfortunate how the division is being really fueled by fear and anxiety and mm-hmm. no good decisions. I mean, I'm not a martial artist, but when I talked to Murray McLaughlin, he said he's a martial artist. He doesn't make a decision based on fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's a challenging time. It's interesting to see Aus- Austria doing a lockdown of anyone who's not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting. The Delta variant has mutated here in North America. And we now have the Delta variant variants, and there's two of them, the AY25 and the AY27. Mm-hmm. So was it the same kind of vibe in Columbia? Physical distancing, hand washing, wear a mask, gather outside? It's, it's interesting, the, the contrast down there, because some of the public health measures were far more strict than what we had in Canada. They had a mandatory mask mandate in all locations all the time. So if you were on the street, if you were walking down the street, if you were walking your dog, 
and obviously indoors same. They they also they tried to institute um, some kind of interesting rules where everyone in Colombia gets a national ID, and so depending on the last digit of your national ID, you would get a day of the week when you were allowed to do grocery shopping. They also had in some areas in Bogota they have a, a, a left wing kind of more progressive uh, mayor, and she tried to institute some very aggressive health measures in the beginning of the pandemic, and she was quite unsuccessful because she didn't really get a lot of you know cooperation from the national government, but. All that to say is that being down there, what was really eye-opening to me was that nothing ever shut down. There was never any lockdown. And I think, and it kind of gets to a bigger question around how does the developing world manage a crisis like this when it doesn't have access to the same international financial instruments that countries like Canada does. And the example I'll give you is that in Canada, we spent $400 billion keeping the economy afloat because we can, right? We have that privilege. We're that lucky. We have an advanced economy where we can create money, whereas developing countries don't have access to credit like that. So they didn't have the luxury of creating a massive kind of social safety net, loans to businesses. They had small programs, but nothing nothing even remotely on the scale of what we were able to do in Canada. So all that to say, though, is that I think, unfortunately, the 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 burden of or the uh, the consequences really of the of the pandemic in Colombia fell disproportionately on the poor, which is not surprising. It's the same almost everywhere, same in Canada. But they are turning the corner now. They uh, they have access to vaccines. My in-laws are now all vaccinated, and uh, so they're quite happy about that. My brother-in-law, he's actually quite young, and so he traveled to the United States to get vaccinated, where they have a surplus, as you know. You know, they're it's actually funny. You know, I I on the way home from work today, I walked into a local drugstore. I I could have got a vaccine for free just walking into a drugstore. They have so many. You don't need an appointment. They're giving them away. I recently saw a stat of some of the spoilage or wasted vaccines here in Canada. And yeah, it's tough. Is that about is that the amount of people that refuse to be vaccinated? And the logistics around moving a vaccine like this are gigantic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Now, is the Cuban Cuba a humanitarian superpower? five vaccines. Are there vaccines in Colombia? No, no. And it's, you know, I mean, I'm not sure how deeply you want to get into Cuba, but um, it's uh, Cuba's complex. And I'm not necessarily sure that the stats that you get um, from Cuba on their their vaccine efficacy are, are as reliable as potentially they would like you to believe. So um, my third dose should be a Sputnik? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, my wife's grandmother, she got the uh, Sinovac Uh, vaccine. And it's looking like now she's got two doses of that. And it looks like she may be eligible soon for a booster from the Pfizer vaccines. They've seen the efficacy numbers on the on the Sinovac haven't really borne out the way they hoped. But all that to say is that uh, Cuba, I haven't seen any news of Cuba. I mean, Cuba uses their healthcare as kind of a political tool. And so they I would imagine that they're quite active in Venezuela, but but not in Colombia. I remember early on in the pandemic when Italy was getting hit hard, they had some healthcare professionals from Cuba to support them. The the complexity of the pandemic and it's changed the world forever. It's forced late adopters of technology to adopt technology. Like you said, the, it's been an unequal burden on uh, the poor. I heard on the 98.5 CKWR, Canada's oldest radio station's Money Minute on the Larry Pine Show, that there have been 500 billionaires created in the first year of the pandemic, while hundreds of millions of people sunk below the poverty line. It's just been such a complex experience. And you got married in it. <laughs> you got married in the pandemic. You followed your heart and your good judgment, and you got married. And what was it like getting married over 
overseas in the middle of a pandemic? That's a great question. And thank you. I mean, we we postponed the, the, the wedding. I should say that we we did our best to be as responsible as possible. We we initially planned on holding the wedding in Colombia in 2020. We were forced to, to delay it uh, due to the pandemic. Once we held it in September of this year, we insisted on everyone had to be vaccinated. Uh, and everyone had to be tested before and after. And so I'm happy to say that we were able to hold the wedding without a single person getting sick. And that includes the staff that that supported the wedding. And so everything went smoothly. I'll tell you the experience of getting married. I mean, for me as a Canadian, it was a destination wedding, right? We were down in Colombia. We didn't get the attendance that we hoped for from the Canadian contingent. My brother came um, and my parents came, God bless them. But my sister was not able to come. My nieces, my sister has two girls. My brother has three. They weren't able to come. So uh, that was quite sad because they were really looking forward to it. And then of course, you know, just the stigma really of, you know, people kind of judging you for going ahead with your plans. You know, we, we really kind of had a a use it or lose it moment where, because we had prepaid for our venue back in 2019. And so we stood to lose thousands of dollars if we didn't go ahead with the wedding. I'm a government worker. I can't afford to walk away from that kind of money. Plus, it was, you know, if we didn't do it, we, we just didn't know when it would be possible. And we wanted to do it before the, the school year started. And so we went ahead and did it. You can only put something off so long. The fear part of the pandemic ended in 2020. And we're in the ADAPT don't in fact live your life to the fullest safely good for you for taking precautions and so many people found themselves in a similar perspective barb doddington who we talked to early on in the pandemic her and her parents had tickets to go down to broadway new york her parents might never leave canada again all Mm -hmm. that money gone talked to other people that have had issues with airline tickets and and whatnot mind-boggling the amount the the economic impacts of this will reverberate for a long time the everything went well it was a success like you said there was no spread of the the pandemic did you get a dj live band yeah well i mean the as i said like the colombian economy continues to kind of truck along right so so we had we had the whole shebang we had uh, we had live music we had a dj one of the reasons why we were attracted to the idea of doing the wedding in colombia was because we could afford so much more like the the costs were and it wasn't cheap but it was a lot cheaper than what you might imagine in canada and so we were able to have a beautiful wedding at the beach you know outdoors the entire ceremony the entire event i should say was outdoors which also helped with you know pandemic concerns but it was a it was a magical beautiful night i mean i, I know it sounds cheesy but it really was we had fireworks we had really touching speeches from both sides of the family. We had we had translations so that the English speakers could understand the Spanish. The food was great. The music was great. And uh, it was really a truly an amazing night. And it was funny because for many of us, it was the first real kind of party we had had in like two years. And so people just danced until their feet hurt. And, uh, you know, we danced right up and we had the venue until 4 a.m. And we most of the guests stayed right till 4 a.m. right until they shut it down. Hot so diggity it dog. A, <laughs> it was great. My sense is, and I'm hearing it from other people, like talk to lots of musicians and artists. They've been working vigorously over the pandemic, being creative. And I feel like when things do start opening up as more of the world enters the second double vax time to relax stage of the pandemic, I feel like there's a great opportunity here and there's a high possibility of a cultural renaissance. I I, I would like to think so. I think that's a wonderful idea. I I also think that like, let's talk about a potential for a political renaissance as well. You know, where people 
we talk about a whole new concept of community and, and a whole new concept of what it means to be a good neighbor. I'd love to see that come out of, of what comes next. In addition to what you mentioned in terms of a cultural renaissance, once people are able to connect again, maybe beautiful music, beautiful art, while at the same time, a new level of political discourse where we acknowledge interconnectedness, interdependence, and really cooperate and kind of put self-interest uh, second to the, to the good of, of, the, of the whole. The first couple months of the pandemic, there really was a chill on social justice, environmental advocacy. But then with the necessary rise of the Black Lives Matters movement and the continued problems around climate change, we've seen horrible cyclones in India. Hurricane seasons seem to be worse each year in the United States. BC, if it's not on fire, seems to be flooded. It's now getting linked to clear-cut logging. But yeah, hopefully the quiet of the pandemic when people heard the nature, whether it was in the city or in the country, because there was more of that time to connect, hopefully that carries through because we do, we had so many problems pre-pandemic. We need to really turn the corner on some of our less than best practices of beforehand. And the pandemic has shown us that we can have drastic change quickly. Like there was drastic change quickly to respond to this. And there have been some good news. I believe it was the G7 recently voted to pass a global corporate income tax. I'm not saying it's high enough, but it's a start. Absolutely. I agree with you. I think, and you look at, I mean, we didn't get the progress we wanted in Glasgow on the uh, the climate talks, but we we got, for the first time, you know, we got two major coal consumers in India and China to admit that their coal use is contributing to global warming um, and climate change. And so, you know, progress is incremental, but it, it is happening. And I think you look at social justice, we could see uh, a universal basic income come out of, of this. I think that hopefully whatever does come out of it, we don't leave those communities and those people who are most vulnerable, we don't leave them to fend for themselves again. We've seen now that the government has the capacity to address these issues. And so let's build a program that's sustainable and bipartisan so that this doesn't become a political football in the future. Let's eliminate poverty in Canada. Let's beef up our healthcare. Let's respect our seniors. Let's make sure we have clean drinking water across the country and, and from top to bottom and, and left to right. I mean, there's so many problems that we've demonstrated now. We have the money and we have got the time. We've got the capacity to address. Let's do it. It's complex, but it's not confusing. We can do it. Something that recently happened that was positive you might notice my terry fox shirt the designs the metis designs in the summer it came out that terry fox's grandmother one of his grandmothers was metis and this year on all the terry fox shirts there's metis designs and i know that it was just painful to think about the trauma and the suffering and the neglect that all those little children faced at those residential schools based on the industrial school model out of the United Kingdom and just the grieving that was going on in Canada. And then something positive came where a national hero, a person of the people, Terry Fox, it came out that his lineage, he is First Nations Indigenous lineage with a Métis grandmother. So I feel like despite all the horror and the, the negative, there are those positive things that are happening, I think, to give the people of the pandemic strength. And we are so lucky here today on the Pandemic Show to be talking with Evan McIntosh. Can you tell us what it's like living in Washington, D.C. during sure. a pandemic? Sure. And, and thanks for that info on Terry Fox, by the way. I hadn't heard that. And uh, Terry Fox, for me, is is 
among my favorite Canadians in terms of historical figures in, in Canadian history. But getting to your question, I mean, the situation down here in Washington, it's difficult. The case numbers continue to rise. Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area has a pretty good vaccine take up. But that said, there's still a lot of underserviced communities within the area, people who are vaccine hesitant for whatever reason, people who don't have insurance. But so the, the interesting thing is that depending on which municipality you go to, you get different restrictions, different public health measures. DC is quite small. And so when you're, you're, you either end up in DC itself, or you end up in Maryland, or you end up in Virginia, depending on how far you stray. Virginia does not have any mask requirement, for example. If you cross the river, you know, you can go shopping. And it's interesting because that's in those kind of environments is where you notice the masking versus non-masking becomes much more of a political statement. Like if you go to your local grocery store, about half the people there are masked and about half the people are not. Most of the employees are. In DC, they have a mask mandate. And so all venues you require, indoor venues, you have to wear a mask. And so, but interestingly, I mean, most restaurants um, and sporting venues continue to operate without spacing restrictions and without a, a vaccine requirement. Although I will say we went to, shortly after arriving here, we went to a film festival where they had a vaccine mandate, which is one of the reasons why we felt comfortable going. So to get into the film festival, you had to show proof of vaccination. I think some places are doing that, but the vast majority, it's kind of business as usual. And they are offering free vaccines for everybody and free COVID testing as well. What do you hope the world is like when we're looking at the pandemic in the rear view mirror? My take on, on the post-pandemic world is I think it's going to take a long time to get there. I think that this thing is going to linger around for a while. So, but I'm not sure that there will be a rear view mirror moment, right? I hope that we get there, but I think we're going to get there before, like without really realizing it. And so, and I think for th those of us who are vaccinated, I think in many ways we're already there, right? In terms of like not having to worry as much about getting sick. But in terms of what do I hope the world is like once we're in this, like we're firmly, you know, COVID is in the, in the past. I think getting back to what I said earlier in terms of politics, where we recognize that we owe each other something, that we do have a, a shared responsibility, where common sense is no longer political. It's simply something that we all agree. I think people just being good neighbors, you know, I think that the concept to me, ever since I was young, I always loved and I was very privileged as a young child to have neighbors that were very generous and caring and that looked after us when my parents needed it. And I think that that's really informed what I kind of define for me, what does it mean to be a good person? And it's, do you care about the person who lives next to you? And do you associate their well-being with your own? And I think the pandemic has really been an opportunity for us to recognize that it's not okay to just be okay by yourself. If I'm not sick, it, my neighbor might be sick and vice versa. If I'm sick, I can get my neighbor sick. I need to respect them, wear a mask, get vaccinated, practice social distancing and vice versa. That there's a give and take and that's intrinsic to living in a modern civilization. And like Nardwar, the human serviette says on his twice a week show on Twitch, keep on washing your hands in the free world and doot, doot, loot, doot. Doot, doot. <laughs> Evan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to The Pandemic Show. We're all in this together, and we're glad you're here together with us. Physically distance with us at pandemishow.com. Be a part of our community by subscribing to and sharing The Pandemic Show. Thanks for taking a minute to email an episode, share a link, or promote us on social media. Pandemic Show is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. Stories from The Pandemic for the people of The Pandemic. 
Do you have an interesting pandemic story and want to share? Email us at pandemishow at gmail.com. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to Giant Value for singing us in and letting us know everything is going to be all right. No one is alone at the Pandemi Show.